Welcome to the Endurance Podcast. My name's Mark Lathwaite, and I'm here with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be talking about what's new in the world of endurance sports, and we'll also be telling you how you can achieve your best on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, well, good afternoon, boys. We have not spoken for a very long time, so it's uh, it's good to catch up with you both, really. Um, you know, as per tradition, I'm going to ask uh, what the weather's like where you are. But if it's anything less than positive, I'm going to be shocked, to be honest. Is it nice and sunny where you are, Mike? It is glorious, absolutely delightful down here. Ian, down where you are, down in Birmingham, is the sun shining on you? Yeah, beautiful in Birmingham again. We've been like this for about a week now, which is just incredible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Been like that for a week. We've had it for about yeah. two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if there's one positive thing to come out of the lo- with this lockdown, it's been the weather, hasn't it? Imagine if it would have been absolutely hammering down for the last two months. It would have been more um, more upsetting than it already has been. Um the uh, I'm uh, getting a little bit like my dad actually now because I never thought I'd reach this point in my life, but I've noticed it's raining on Wednesday, Thursday. We're going to get some rain, and when I saw it, I thought, "Oh, that's good because we need a bit of rain for the plants." And I want to roll the lawn, and it has to be damp to roll it. And I just thought, "What point in my life have I reached now, where I'm hoping for rain so I can do a bit of garden?" So I probably need to. Uh, just get a bit of a grip on myself, really, and, and hope the sunshine continues. So we thought today we have a bit of a, a COVID catch-up, really, and just to talk about what's been going on at work and with family and uh, training and, and, you know, clients and people that we're coaching. Just a general, a general chat, really, and see where we're at. Um, Mike, I, I know you're, you've obviously not stopped working, have you, over the last couple of months? You've been super busy with all of your... Uh, physio and sports injury businesses so how are you finding stuff with kids at home and work and training I know obviously with an marathon disabler was cancelled you know where are you at at the moment yeah hi gents hi everyone listening good to be back um Ian and I have caught up regularly it's Mark who keeps standing us up every couple of weeks <laughs> so so that's why we haven't been around for a while uh, I too I too just hear my dad and me all the time I actually hit my old, I hit him with the line, my eldest son with the line last week. He was crying in a sulk for no reason. And it, I could hear the words falling out of my face. If you don't stop crying soon, I'll give you something to cry about. And <laughs> um, and I was, oh my God, I'm there. I'm back in 1984 and I'm now my dad. But um, yeah. So yeah, I have been really super busy this end. Um, partly because... I am still in work, but I'm working reduced hours. So it's trying to condense more into, into hours, but also I'm trying to be busy. So um, so overall, like 10 weeks down the line, um, I've been surprised at my positivity throughout the whole thing. 
I'm not someone who is a home bird. I don't like being stuck at home, but I've actually enjoyed. I think I've enjoyed the pace of life settling down, not having so many obligations to run off to. Um, but like most of us now, last week or so, I'm starting to get itchy feet that feels like the world needs a kickstart back into normal routine and normal motion. And so we can we can try and come out of this some, some way, somehow. Um, Business-wise, has been brilliant, if I'm honest. The... I think I mentioned the last time we chatted, just as we started lockdown, something that's been around for years in in rehab and physio was online assessments. And um, it's something I've dabbled with for a few years, but some people have stayed away from. And and what the eight to 10 weeks has done is shine a spotlight on the ability to see people remotely and then how much you can actually get done through a remote session. So um, for those of us who appreciated what we could do, it's been really good confirmation. And for therapists and athletes alike who didn't know what could be done, it's been a bit of an eye-opener. I think it'd be interesting to see now going forward when the dust settles, how much of it remains. I think there'll be some people who will will overhaul their business from the rehab side and they'll do predominantly online stuff. And there'll be some who'll be desperately keen to get back to their biases and start rubbing people, putting pins in people, poking them and, and doing all the stuff they traditionally do. Um, I've I've been able, fortunately now, because I've had the, the thing that has lost out for me is my teaching. So I the, the weekends and the time I would be away teaching a lot, I've been able to see more people online. And I've had athletes all over the world coming coming for a bit of advice and guidance with me. So so that's been fantastic. Um what I've done, I've really enjoyed doing, um, taking a leaf out of your bookmark of trying to always give something back. I noticed really early in, in the days of the lockdown that there's always a lot of noise from the rehab world that's floating around the internet. And it's such a hard thing for athletes to know what's good, what's bad advice and, and where, to, where to find the good stuff. So what happened early doors was a lot of the therapists who were trying to switch to online started chucking out more and more content and and suddenly the the saturated market became even more saturated so something i jumped on early was offering free q a sessions live facebook lives or zoom calls with running clubs triathlon clubs any sort of sports sports clubs to just have you know chew the fat for an hour and offer some some sort of clarity and, and guidance in in what is right and wrong with, with the advice that's out there and um, and I've probably done at least two a week. I've loved doing it. I've done it to big clubs, small clubs, um, all, all over the UK predominantly, but a few few more uh, wider field internationally. And I've got to interact and speak with hundreds of athletes about stuff. And, and some of them have followed on afterwards into, into appointments or patients. And, and some have just been, I would have never ever approached someone to ask these questions but because you're there it's been fantastic so so from from that side of of the the coin i've I've felt it's been a really positive experience um so you've been doing those for free with running clubs tri clubs things like that yeah and so you either do them on zoom and you and everybody dials in so you can speak to people or you'll do it facebook on a facebook live and they'll ask questions is that right yeah, yeah, pretty much. So the Facebook Live tends to be pre-written questions. The, the guys will advertise in the Facebook group that this is the time and the date for the session, post your questions. 
So I'll get a heads up with some of those questions. But of course, people will still comment in the comments box when I'm talking live, answering the other questions, and we can we can go on some live stuff from there. That works well. I quite enjoy that. I think my preference is the Zoom calls because there's however many people live in front of you and yeah. people can physically ask you a question or I think sometimes more importantly follow up or tangent questions on something that you've just talked about or answered and it's really interactive and um, and therefore there's no confusion and there's nothing lost in translation that way yeah. but they both work they both work well they're both both good things and and I guess um, it's nice when you do it with I think the biggest one was about 300 people on a zoom call um and the smallest has probably been 10 and each one as you know you've got a big reach with a couple of hundred people but likewise with 10 you feel you've got a real sort of fireside chat and some real close contact with people yeah um and, and i'm i'm hoping i know i've had an invite from a lot that these are people that i would never have, have had contact with in the past so potentially going forward who knows if i'm somewhere around the uk training racing or, or visiting then there's probably some friends I can now call on and and mm. go and tag along to a club session somewhere. So so that's been really positive. Um, I've been really keen to do them for free. Um, I don't want to make anything out of it. I'm not trying to gain anything out of it other than just interacting with people and and I guess I get a bit of raised profile out of it. But um, but it feels good to to give something back. There's been a couple who were adamant about paying and and we've given um, I'm if. If I'm ever pushed for charity donations, I'm always a big fan of Great Ormond Street. So um, I was fortunate enough many years ago to spend a, a rotation there. And seeing those little ones going through what they go through was was tough at the time. But as a dad now, that was something that's always hit, hit a chord with me. So so there has been a few where they've given a, a, a kind gesture to, to gosh for me. But um, yeah, most of them have been free. Um, there's also been some um, online... So therapist based mainly, not not athlete based, but therapist based conferences and seminars and workshops and webinars that I've jumped on, which have been quite good to, to pass on some knowledge there. Family wise has been good. Um, I'm a big fan of spending time with my kids. I, I I can't get enough of them being around. And although they, so the wife's a dentist and she still works half days, so she physically goes to work. Whereas when when dad's in work, he comes in the front office and, and shuts the door. And, and even now, 10 weeks in, they're a little bit, well, you're not really in work, dad. You're in the front office. So why can't I still come in and, and talk to you? So so that, that's been tougher. But we, um, we've we had a big inflatable pool in the garden. And both of them been out on lots of bike rides and runs. And, and that way, we've, we've done a lot of good stuff and, and a real lot of... Um, sort of life skills i guess the homeschooling hasn't been too successful i've switched most of them into some sort of physical activity rather than learning we've done a bit of learning but it's been a, a quality 10 weeks as far as that goes i got a question um, schooling for you mike i'm only asking you this because it'll make me feel better so <laughs> my kids like yours we will go out canoeing or we'll go if i've got a four and a six year old and we'll go out biking or walking and we do lots of stuff outdoors and taking them to the beach and stuff like that and they, you know they, they love all that kind of stuff but for me to get them to sit down and read or do some spelling or do some maths or some kind of homework and just absolutely fighting them and I'm getting quite I feel quite anxious about the homeschooling and I keep thinking to myself surely they're not like this in school 
you know, because they <laughs> and everybody keeps saying to me, no, no, they're not like that in school. You know, that's what kids do when they're at home. They're different with the parents and when they're when they're in school. So I'm just curious, Mike, do, do you have to really fight to get them to do maths and reading with you as well? Is it easier just to take them out outdoors instead? It's got harder. It, was, it wasn't too bad. We've had a bit of a routine. Uh, generally, the wife is far more patient than I am. I get I get ratty with them. I get short with them because I want them to do it and I want them to do it well. And when they don't, I get irritated. And, and, and on reflection, it's probably my style of teaching worse than hers is. That's probably part of it. Um, so what I've done a lot of the time is, so the answer to the question is yes, I struggle to get them to sit down and do stuff. So it, it's being clever with maybe 10 minutes on paper and 10 minutes on, on a tablet doing some app game or something. Um, but the other one for me has been to go for long walks or do exercise with them. And while we're out, lots, lots of questions and spelling and maths and stuff that way. Um, that seems to be my, my successful way with them. But yeah, um, but yeah I think so. My, my oldest is I'm really proud of him in school. But he's a bit of a dick at home when it comes to learning because he knows he can take li- he can take liberties with dad. Whereas my youngest, who's 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 hands down the worst kid in the school, uh, as far as just not listening, he's a little angel at home. So so it's a real funny dynamic the shift in, in in their personalities being at home or in school. But yeah, it's um, I wouldn't quite say I've got a new respect for teachers yet. I've always been. Uh, I always get frustrated at how, how stressed they all seem to be with, with the hours and the terms that they work. I wouldn't be stressed with 15 hours of, or 15 weeks of holidays a year. But, um, but yeah, I'm sure when there's a gang of them in the class, it, it's tougher than the reason I'm finding my own ones. But then I wonder whether that, I wonder whether part of the problem when I'm trying to teach my two is because I love them so much. They're not just two kids in a class. Yeah. So I'm I, I I'm more attached to them. I'm more involved with them. I'm more sort of um, uh, less less sort of I'm more objective and less subjective with them than a teacher maybe. So that's probably part of the problem. Yeah. Ian Ian on the uh, obviously another listeners can't see this, but we were on video call. Ian's face was was a uh, priceless then when you when you had a pop at teachers. <laughs> He's not even a proper teacher. I won't mention it to Vicky. <laughs> yeah. But. Uh, what about yeah. your, uh, Mike? Where are you at um, with your um, clients and stuff, and the people that you're coming in and seeing? How are they dealing with their training routines and their, you know, their rehab? Are you finding people are still staying pretty focused, or what? What do you kind of, what are you, you know, what what stuff are you getting back from the people that you're speaking to online or seeing face to face? It's a mix. It's a mix. You got some guys who are absolutely exemplary in their approach. They they've either knuckle down to get on with training or rehab or realize that it's an opportunity. We mentioned it on the podcast before, uh, what I always call sharpening the axe. They, they really realize the opportunity they have to, to, to benefit and, and progress themselves for the future. There's others that have found themselves very disillusioned and lost focus on everything. And that's been a tough one. And then I guess this is natural as the longer things go on, I'm seeing people now shift. I'm seeing people who were once good and now struggling to, to maintain the, the um, adherence and compliance to stuff. And likewise, I'm seeing people now coming back to me going, right, okay, I've, I've had my dark days. Uh, I've dusted off the, the bike. I've stopped drinking each night and I'm ready to, to go again. And what do I need to do? So, so I've seen a cross-section of everything. Um, 
I think probably more people <laughs> making positive things out of it than negative. But um, but it's been a it's been a time as a therapist to let not not force things so much with people. Let let people come around to those decisions themselves and and realize that uh, the last thing they needed of me was more stress, more more pushing, more stress, more more animosity when it when they perhaps weren't ready for change. So now that they are, then then we've tried to embrace it as much as we can. Um, I think then the other thing with me is, is is my training. I think the the probably the biggest area of confusion and um, lack of balance in the last ten weeks for me has been my training. As we all know, MDS got postponed, and that for a while I was relatively positive. Okay, I'll I'll deload for a few weeks, and then I'll pick it up and go again. And and truth be told, the two or three weeks deload was fine, and the last six eight weeks from there, I've just really struggled, really struggled. I I, I probably spent two more weeks doing not a lot, um, and then absolutely pissed about for two or three weeks, just a couple of miles every time I ran. I might run, I might not run nowhere near where I should have been and, and where where I had a program to pick it back up for September I was, I was way off um I'm now so I stripped my training back I put a post out on Facebook explaining it probably two weeks ago now that I rewrote my whole program and it's just based off time now I'm just training to time with no no other goals than just time on my feet and it has helped for the last two weeks now I've got a little bit more structure I'm running four times a week and I'm slowly building it up um I'm still, if I'm on it, so I'm way off. I'm way off where I should be or would want to be. The um, the biggest fear for me now is that MDS goes ahead and I'm not in any sort of shape compared to where I was back in Feb or March. When I end up walking. It's supposed to be 8th till the 18th of September. Um, so, so the guilt now is kicking in about, you know, the worst case scenario is I'm not ready. Um, but likewise still the unknowns there's more and more people on a daily basis deferring to april the the big the big discussion point in mds circles now is the potential quarantine so people although we still genuinely believe it won't go ahead people are now thinking well well one strong possibility is the race goes ahead in some form or other and we have 10 to 14 days in morocco beforehand and 10 to 14 days before we come back suddenly now we're looking at a month away to do a 10-day race so I think a lot of people would have to drop out probably myself included business-wise and family-wise I probably can't afford a month away so um, so now there's there's more and more people each day deferring to April in the thought of it's probably going to be cancelled but if it goes ahead I don't want to have to be forced to pull out because of those those situations so I'm I'm still stuck and torn um, I well, we were, I'm probably, I guess I'm about 90 days away right now, which is still fine as far as training goes. But I'm probably going to make a decision in the next two or three weeks if, if nothing happens overtly. Um, the French are being stub, you know, stubbornly French about it. They're, they're not going to, I can't see them making the decision early to, to pull out. That They posted a video um, not too long ago saying it's happening. So... Um, so, which they did before, which they did up until a couple of days before they announced it was off last time, in a bit of a comedy sort of scenario. So, um, so I've got a little bit more structure now, a little bit more balance, and I'm finding that's happening with others as well. But I'm starting to think I might just 
bang out and, and defer to April and then I know I've got a proper training base and, and the lay of the land will be that the race is, is probably going to be on So yeah. um, in April. So that's pretty much probably my last six, eight weeks. Um, lots of positives. Try, I'm trying hard to, to not see the negatives in, in anything. Um, business has been a, a positive change. I've spoken to hundreds of athletes in, in, in ways that I wouldn't have spoken to before. And uh, finally, much much belated, but finally getting my training back into some sort of order and routine. Yeah, I would say that that's something I see quite a lot of now as well. There's a lot of people who um, have kind of given up on the year, and I think to, to 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 have a goal and to train hard towards that goal is difficult enough. To have um, confusion or no certainty on whether it's even going to take place or not, to train for something that you you're not even sure it's going to happen, is incredibly hard. You know, I'm in the same situation for Wales, and uh, I'm just just cracking on and training for it. Ironman Wales in September, as if it's going to go ahead, and I think maybe it still has a chance of going ahead. Um, I think international races, like you say, most of the international races with the quarantine and people flying in from other countries. You know, they cancelled um, the uh, was it, is it European Triathlon Championships that were in Holland in September, um, and they cancelled that this week, didn't they? But it's an international event with people flying in from all, all over the world is one thing. A, a UK-based event, like I know there'll be international competitors at Ironman Wales, but the bulk of them are UK-based, aren't they? So that's a, that's a very different scenario. Um, but people uh, have, have just um, given up on the whole year and just gone, right, I'm going to stop. And I'm going to just focus on next year now. And that's what I'm going to do. And, and that's, that's interesting in itself that those people, A, need a goal. That's, you know, that's a, if they haven't got that goal there to train for, they just don't want to train. So the goal is the prime motivator for them. But secondly, the goal actually for a lot of people hasn't been removed yet. They just don't know whether it's going to go ahead. And that's enough to completely throw them off the game. You know, yeah. so that's... Uh, you know, that's that's finding that really fascinating. People just don't know what's happening to them. They're really struggling with it. And it's not just sport. I mean, God, we know there are bigger things than sport, but I just think it's it's everything. People with work and whatever else, you know, I've been struggling like hell with work. And it's just because you just, you just don't know what's going on, do you? You know. The other thing that's been interesting with, with some of the conversations I've had about the long-term, the, the training side of it for people is, actually how forward thinking some are in a, in a positive way so i've spoken to lots where they've gone look i did a four to six month training program it got postponed six months that's fine i've gone again for that one but i'm also happen. i now need to go three cycles three training cycles for i don't know if i could motivate myself the third time so I'm going to pull the plug on the second time to know there's a more definitive plan for the third one. Yeah. And then likewise, I'm also seeing somewhere, and this has been an interesting one, some people who have been super motivated for an event, but it looks like there's a, on that motivation, there's, there's, a, there's a finite it they can remain motivated for. And they've gone, you know, I cannot be bothered to go again for another, and MDS is a great example, you know, all the prep, thousand pound in in the hall if it doesn't go go or you do don't go for. But some of them are gone. You know, look, it's it's. I focus so much on this, and and Ian can tap tap into this one. But I focus so much on this. 
tank is almost empty to do it again. And that's been a really interesting dynamic, speaking to some people there. And they gutted about it, but they just know they just can't lift themselves again. Yeah. And, of course, that's not a physical thing, because I think most of those people can quite physically handle three training cycles absolutely fine. That is, of course, a mental thing, isn't it? They just can't lift themselves, um, which is uh, probably a, a good uh, time to come to you, Ian, and your thoughts on that. You know, what, what's your thoughts on what Mike's just said? Any comments on, on what Mike said? And then also where you are, you know, with work and family and training, you know? Yeah, there's a, one or two things in there that um really interesting and sort of resonating with some of the things that I was planning to talk about and I've been thinking about recently. And, um, you know, one of them is, you know, around about amount of motivation and seeing people sort of dipping the motivation and, and dropping off. And it's, it's interesting. It's something that I've observed in others um, during the lockdown, but I've not just seen it in sport. And I think it was around about that sort of seven, eight weeks period in lockdown where a lot of people were really motivated early on but I, I saw it with the uh, with our children at home as well with the homeschooling they were actually really good um, and really sort of committed to it but around that seven or eight weeks they really started to struggle and I've seen the same with, with a lot of uh, people I know in terms of the training and uh, I think people, so there is a difference, <clears throat> and uh, some of them, uh, I think there's different types of people, and we all know people who race a lot and need a lot of races, and that's natural part of the training, and that is something that motivates them, <clears throat> and almost, you know, some of the sea races are forming part of the training. I think probably those are the people that have really found this the most difficult, because unless they've been able to find some sort of replacement for that, so if you're a cyclist or you're a triathlete and you've been on Swift and you've got involved in, <clears throat> I know you've been running some uh, duathlons, the virtual duathlons and so on, <clears throat> I think that they can act as sort of a proxy that can sort of maintain that type of motivation where you need to be competing against others. But other people who are much more, uh, I, I probably fall more into this category where I don't race that often, but I invest a lot in terms of those races and what I want to get out of them. But they also form very important marks in the sand for me in my training year. So I think the two groups struggle, but for different reasons. So unless you can find some, if you're very competitive and you need the, the sort of race environment to, to bring the best out in you and to motivate you, then you're struggling unless you can find a proxy for that. I think if you're the sort of person that races far less often, but they're important milestones in your year, then you almost need to find replacements. Um, so I actually, I, I ran a marathon uh, or mar marathon distance, but in training. So found a course, set it up. Um, it was a four lap course. Vicky and the, and the kids were at the point, And then I was picked another drink up each lap. So I'd carry my drinks. Uh, and that sort of marked the end of what would be a normal sort of spring training and spring marathon training and in the build-up to that I, so I, I actually volume dropped down because you could only train once a day at that time and normally I'd be training twice a day out, out running but in terms of quality sessions I kept all them in and I ran my normal taper and I, I was I'm someone who looks a lot of the training outputs and my performances and I'm comparing to past years so I, I could pretty much do all of that as I, as I normally did um, and then I could look at my performance in the actual 
uh, sort of event. I wouldn't call it a race, but I always like to try and let's say I try different things in each training program. I'm trying to learn from that, and I still think I, I learned quite a lot. Yeah, so that didn't feel as though that sort of winter block of training was lost. But then it, it, it was a little bit more difficult to sort of restart things. So naturally, if you do something that's quite, you know, even if it's a 26-mile time trial at home in training, it's not the same as you don't take as much out of yourself as you would if you were in a race, but it's still a pretty hard event. So I gave training after that. Um, but then I didn't know really what my next goal was, and I still haven't really identified something big because you don't really know what's possible in terms of where we can travel to or what you could do even if it's something on your own in the mountains so what i've been doing is setting sort of smaller milestones and and, and smaller goals working towards those and setting objectives which still gives me direction and focus um and now i'm starting to be able to get out on the trails a little bit as well which is nice um even if it's only uh on a weekend uh and that's and that's been really helpful but it's sort of my training has been helped i think by the family as well so uh, and most athletes will probably appreciate this that often a lot of the things that you do involve the family um one opportunity that this sort of brought about is being able to train much more with emily she's our elder child so she's nine it's probably the worst endurance sport to be doing at the moment because you haven't been able to get in the pool at all. Now we're just looking at up and water. So she's actually done a lot more running. And I've been doing my sessions and then I'll go out with Emily straight afterwards or I'll use it as a warm-up before mine. And uh, and that's really been sort of really motivating for me, but also something that I just get the opportunities to do, which has been really good. Um, interesting that you said about people say I was going to pick up on was people giving up on uh, you know or giving up on this year and just saying well it off it's something that probably crosses a lot of people's mind but I th- my major concern with that is wh- where does it leave you in terms of leading into the next year because if I think if I was to write my year off now and just say stop training. I don't think I would come into sort of December, January in as good a shape as I normally would. I'd be starting uh, a much lower point. So what I've actually done is to sort of reanalyze the year. Well, what does it do differently or what could be some of the benefits that have come out of this? And obviously normally I have a really big ultra endurance event in July the 100 um, for about the last eight or nine years. I, w- I probably won't, uh, you know, I'm not going to have that this year, which probably means that I'm not going to need that month or six weeks of recovery after that. So I probably have a much longer um, building to, to to spring next year. So I'm seeing that as an opportunity to try something different I wouldn't be able to do any other year. And I think that putting that positive slant on that, you know, looking at what are the positives and what are the opportunities it gives you. Um, can be beneficial as well. So I would, yeah, I would definitely uh, be reluctant to advise people to write off the year. I think in the terms of racing, uh, obviously we might have to do that. We don't know. That's out of our control at the moment. But I think in terms of my overall objective for training is to stay 
in good enough shape so that I could probably in five or six weeks get into shape pretty quickly um, if the opportunity does come back. Um, and I think that's that's what I'm doing. There's that and then these short-term objectives, some of the smaller things that I might need to work on and things that I probably wouldn't be doing at this time that I can then focus my training on. Um, I guess, I suppose that's... So what- I, I, I was going to say this point that uh, Mike was making earlier about sharpening the axe, isn't it? That you've got this opportunity yeah. here to, you don't have to push, push, push because there's no race in four weeks' time. So you can take a step back and look at those things that you probably would never have bothered solving. Yeah. Because you were panicking too much to get fit for the race that's coming four weeks ahead. That, that's right. So you, you prioritise the race, but you haven't got that thing to, to make you for, force you to take that priority now you've got more flexibility to say actually what would i like to work on now so when i was thinking about um recording this podcast and what advice you might give them i'm thinking about you know the importance of goals and setting targets for yourself and i thought it was interesting when mike was saying that he, he hasn't been but then he went on to say that he, he has been setting time-based targets um, and he's found that helpful in terms of it's really important in times like this where there's so much uncertainty and we're all coming from different in terms of our training uh, training phases we're in training history and all the other pressures that are on us at this time and all the uncertainty in terms of that we're really easy on ourselves in terms of you know how strict we are in, in terms of our goals and how hard we make those goals and I think sometimes maybe just that those type of targets might be what some people need that is just enough to sort of get them back on the ladder and get that step forward again rather than saying well where would I want it to be at this point or where I normally am at this point of the year or if I'm doing if I am able to do that race in the autumn what shape do I need to be in now and then trying to work towards those targets which are maybe unrealistic right now I mean I think we all need to recognize and appreciate that I'm not going to use the word unprecedented because I think that's overused at the moment but um, it's certainly everyone's favorite word but we are in a situation that is unlike any that we've been in the past and hopefully unlike any one that will be in the future so I think in terms of the targets we set for ourselves or what condition we get into if we do race we just need to take this as a as a single year in isolation and we're not beating ourselves up because we're not in the shape that we've been in the past but we are doing what we can to be effective in terms of setting ourselves goals that will motivate us and keep us in decent shape ready so that we can go into the, the following year because I do think there's a real danger in terms of sort of just writing off a single year because some people can do that quite easily and then come back very quickly we all know people that you know maybe get an injury are out for two or three months and then bounce back very quickly. But other people, you know, might have two or three months out because of an injury and yeah, they, they might really struggle to come back from that. So I don't think we, you know, just writing things off because we can't race and then trying to come back next year might be very detrimental for some athletes, I think. Which, what might be better is to just try and back off in terms of the, the levels that we're, we're setting for ourselves or looking for an alternative sport or an opportunity to try to think about what normally motivates us and what what is it that motivates us. We found replacements and properties for them uh, and set targets around those 
so that um, we make the quickest transition possible to come back. And I think in, I was mentioning in my own training in terms of, so I'm doing quite regular tempo stroke time trials, which I'm finding really motivating uh, because it gives me a track of where I'm at and how I'm progressing. But uh, before we started recording today, we, we were talking about um, that might be what racing looks like when we come back anyway, where we're doing, we're, we might be running time trials. We might be, time trials on the bike might be much more popular, uh, already a big part of the British racing scene, but that might be the only form of racing. So getting into a position where we can dictate our pace and pace ourselves and, uh, and race time trials very effectively might actually be useful when it comes to returning to racing as well. Um, but also it can be very motivating. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, it's certainly been an interesting uh, 10 weeks for me. I, I've certainly seen those shifts in motivation, both in terms of myself and other people, but also those those pressures that come externally. And that's probably the thing that I've struggled with most is not my motivation to train. It's finding a new routine because work has tended to, bringing new routines, lots more meetings because of the convenience of Zoom meetings that wouldn't normally have because a lot of them are forced upon us because of the COVID-19 situation and having to deal with, to deal with. but all the business as usual is still there as well. So you've got more meetings than ever. You're also trying at home, but you're trying to fit your training around that. Two, two of my runs a day were running so my train was just there but now I had to actually decide when I'm going to train and factor that in and actually motivate to get myself out, out the door um, which is you know, quite different for me because I would run into work potentially do a session at lunch and then run up on the night and then my three sessions for the day yeah. um, none of that structure was there so I, I think I've, I've found that balance and that structure now but that certainly took a few weeks to do that I was always motivated to do the sessions but they always seemed to seem to be happening towards the end of the day because everything else was coming first and that was getting put off and put off and then I was doing the session um, in the evening so I've definitely got better at that um, and it just planning it as part of my day uh, rather than just trying to you know fit in where I can and, and that's really helped so I think you know our pre-planning the thought that goes into your training probably needs a bit more effort as well now then yes for a lot of people yeah yeah um but yeah it's been an interesting eight to ten um and it's going to be a fair bit longer for me as well i think because although the kids are going back to school from next we're likely not to return to campus until late into september the earliest when the students come back so the, we are reopening one or two buildings, but it's for specific uh, pieces of research activity that need to be in the labs to do it. And if you're not in that situation, you're still working from home. So I'm probably not even halfway through my period of work from home. So, um, you know, that, that's uh, thinking about now in terms of how I structure my training and yeah. keep things motivated over the coming months. How about you, Mark? How have you found things? But just, it's interesting a second ago you mentioned that you've been having lots of you know all these zoom meetings during the day and stuff and 
I can't help but think that, you know, the people at Skype have waited all their lives for this to happen, haven't they? And now it's happened. They've had their asses kicked by Zoom. <laughs> Skype, you know. It's been Zoom bombed. Did Zoom even exist 12 months ago? There was only there was only Skype. And at the time when everybody, one time at last when everybody needs Skype and Zoom comes along and blows it out of the water, they must be fuming. Although I, spot, I thought you're not supposed to use Zoom because the, uh, the Chinese government are listening to us. Is that not right? <laughs> Don't know. They will listen to this rubbish. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I think on the free licenses, um, they sell all the data uh, on Zoom for uh, translation, uh, testing translation software. So I don't think they do anything more with it than that, but it, it was more the concerns of people Zoom bombing and listening in and yeah. chipping into conversations, I think, was quite yeah. a major one at one time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's right. Yeah, and a, lot, and a lot of it was just people weren't setting it up right. People had jumped in and there was some really simple measures with your controls that you could do that activating your waiting room and things like that was quite quite easy steps to do it so uh, um yeah yeah but zoom, uh, had, zoom had been around for a while it was well known in the business world but yeah. not outside the business world so um so they've just jumped on it stepped up to the mark at the time of crisis yeah 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 i think i mean things with us i'm, I'm just kind of listening to what you two are saying really and just kind of nodding my head because it's very very much the same really and um you know i'm still training towards uh Ironman Wales in first week, first, second week of September. And uh, I, I think there's, there's still a chance it might go ahead. I mean, Ironman produced a video on social distancing measures and stuff. And quite interesting with the, the Ironman video, I don't know if you've seen it, but they've started talking about self-reliance, which is basically their term for carry your own water. So they're talking about contact points. So the more times you pick up cups or bottles from aid stations, the more chance of you know, uh, getting across contamination. So they're, they're saying that they're going to encourage people to carry water vests, uh, hydration packs on the run. There didn't seem to be any mention it on the bike. And that's, that's, that's quite interesting. I can see why they're saying it. And I don't know whether they're doing that because they want to allay fears to people who are concerned. So if you're really concerned about it, come and run in a, in a vest, in a hydration vest. If you're not concerned about it, we'll have cups there anyway. It doesn't really explain it any further and certainly on the bike i mean i would get through seven or eight bottles of water on the bike you just couldn't carry it you know so but i also think with iron man and one thing we you know that that we've had gonna have to address when our events start up again is the other problem of course is is marshals and volunteers so i don't know whether the um self-sufficient thing where you carry your own water whether it is going to become compulsory or whether it's going to be your own choice and I don't know whether it's to um, to genuinely stop cross-contamination or whether it's just to allay fears, you know, make people feel a bit more comfortable, you know, to carry your own water and then you've got less chance of catching anything. And I also don't know how much of it is because of a lack of potential volunteers and marshals on the run course. You know, so if you've got less staff, the more you can get competitors to carry themselves, maybe the easier it is to manage it. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. But, but yeah, I don't fancy carrying eight bottles of water around Ironman Wales on the bike be an absolute nightmare paid six grams to have it 500 kilograms lighter on my wheels you know <laughs> so uh, have they mentioned anything about drafting yet about the drafting mm. uh well what the the uh this is another thing she talked about uh races being time trial formats and uh, you know the events that we're organizing this is some of the things we're looking at and 
even though the rules, you know, the government rules at the moment is you can exercise and meet up in groups of six now, can't you? Is that right? Has it changed in the last two days? I, I can't keep yeah. it. Yeah. That, that's it, yeah. Up but to five, I think. As a group of six, you've got to stay two metres apart, haven't you? Is that right? Yeah, you meant to still social distance, yeah. Because yeah. I'll be honest, I, I'm never more than an inch off the wheel in front of me, so that's going to be a massive issue for me. Two metres two meters off the, off the wheel in front of me is, you know, unknown territory for me. Yeah. And, and I need bigger wheels. Yeah, well, I certainly never go on the front, <laughs> that's, for, that's for sure. But the, um, yeah, the... the the um the whole time trialing thing and, and keeping people apart on the bike and everything it, that's going to be really really tricky but when we look to start organizing events if we organize triathlons or swims or running events we will be looking to do them as a time trial format so we have an open water swim session in wigan and uh, where we can get on a good night we've had over like about 240 250 swimmers turn up on a good night and it's a big lake and there's lots of parking so we can handle big numbers. And we started that now two weeks ago. We just completed two weeks of open water swimming. We have a session on a Wednesday and a session on a Saturday. And um, what actually happened with the open water swimming, to me, it appears that, that I swear one of Boris's mates is an open water swimmer um, because he announced that open water swimming was permitted and he followed it up with my right honourable friend will be glad to hear. So um, that makes me think it was probably uh, someone gave him a push. But they announced that open water swimming could take place. But at the same time, it was announced on the Sunday, venues were not allowed to open. So ticketed venues, water sports venues, whatever terminology they're using, weren't allowed to open. So then the Royal Life Saving Society just went nuts and said, well, hang on a second. And we were getting emails through to our store with people saying, so can I just go and jump in the local reservoir? And you know that lake where you swim? Can we climb over the fence and go in? You know, it's a private facility. So that, that was the reaction, that people were just going to go and jump in reservoirs. So then the Royal Life Service Society just uh, uh, stepped in straight away and said, that's a really, really bad bit of advice. So that the, the announcement came out on Sunday, you could open water swim. And by Wednesday, they'd, they'd fast-tracked it so open water venues could open for obvious reasons, because they were going to end up people, you know, how many people would have drowned as a consequence of that. So when they said venues could open, then we just decided to go ahead and we risk assessed it. We had a thorough risk assessment. We worked with the council and all that kind of stuff. And we've had two weeks now where, uh, where it's just been full up with people coming. Obviously, they can't get to the pools either. So the demand for open water swimming is even bigger because they can't get to the swimming pools. Um, but in essence, if we can get those 100 people in the water and we can do it safely and we reg and all the procedures we've put in place, we've followed the government do uh, documents then really, you know, you're only one step away from hosting a, an event. So if I had those swimmers to come in at 30 second gaps and swim two laps of the lake and as they got out, they crossed the timing mat, we have in effect got, an, got a race, you know. So I think maybe with running events, that might be what happens, that you register online and briefings online and nothing's collected on the day. So there are no queues and you will turn up in your car and you'll go from car to start line. You wait at your car then you'll go to the start line when it's your turn to start. So you might have runners started at one minute intervals over like a four or five hour period rather than a mass start. And they go to the start and then they, they um, set off and they pass people, give them two meters width either side when they, if they overtake. And then when they cross the line, there's no gathering at the finish. They go back to the car and they go home. And that that's, you know, a, a, I suppose a safe way to start running swimming events and cycling events and running events that might make them possible. In you know, I'm talking about events up to 500 initially to make them happen. So that's what we're hoping we will be able to do from August. 
And, uh, and yeah, when we open this, this, the Wednesday and the Saturday swims, the, the, it, there's been a huge demand and people have been um, people have been desperate to to swim and have had no negative feedback. No one's saying that we're being irresponsible, you know, only positive feedback. But interesting from the psychology perspective as well. I mean, not to kind of say this, we're open water swimming is some, we're somehow saving people. But um, from a psychology perspective, I think getting people back into normal. So it's okay saying we're going to do Ironman Wales, but people turning up to Ironman Wales might have not even ridden or swam with anybody since last year. So you're going to go from zero to two and a half thousand people on a beach. You know, how does that work? And I think initially you could see people were, a few people are nervous and we were, you know, we were encouraging everybody to be aware that other people are nervous. But we are almost just re-socialising people to open water swimming in that environment and it took people maybe the first couple of sessions just to get used to it. It's all very, you know, feels quite strange and alien to them. So I think that for me is part of the process. If we can safely start to open water swim on a, on a Wednesday and a Saturday and we can do it well and people obey the rules, then probably that will make them feel a bit more comfortable if next month we say we're going to organise an event because we haven't just jumped from nothing to an event, you know. So, um, so yeah, so I I'm, I'm really hope that we can organise some smaller events in what we're aiming for August, uh, if everything continues on its current path and, you know, we don't have this hope, um, second spike that people are talking about. So, uh, yeah, and that's where we are with events. And uh, the other thing I would say is, of course, virtual events, which have become, they're, they're having their limelight now, aren't they, with people entering virtual events. And it's not something that I ever really, um, I was ever keen on in the past, because I believe that sports events are more about community and the social aspect of turning up and being there on race day and experiencing it and that anxiety not just being on your own and running around a loop to get a medal. But um, but then interestingly how that's, that my perceptions of that have altered now. So I've been doing some virtual events. We've organized virtual events. And like you, it, it's a regular time trial for me during the week. So I'm pushing myself quite hard on, harder than I probably would otherwise on those time trials because we're comparing with other, other people. Um, and as you know, of course, we've, 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 we're going to run a virtual Lakeland event uh, 50 and Lakeland 100 at the end of uh, end of July, where you've got a week to run 50 miles or a week to run 100 miles, and you log your distance each day and so on, and there's a medal at the end of it. So um, yeah, I've gone from being a bit of a skeptic to uh, actually embracing it now, and I think I was wrong about the community thing as well because when I posted it onto Lakeland 100, I was doing it just to test the water. So I wasn't going to organize a virtual event if it didn't get much of a response. And it actually got a massive response. And I think it shows you how online you can still generate a big community and people feel they're part of something. And it also, we go back to goal setting, loads of comments from people saying, I bet I could do 100 miles in a week, even if I walked some of it. I could do 100 miles in a week. And suddenly people have got something to aim for this challenge at the end of July to do 50 or 100 miles in a week. You know, so, I, yeah, I, the, my whole opinion on virtual events has, has, has completely changed. Um, I am tempted to do it, you know, because I, I'm looking at it and thinking we should all do it. Why don't we all do it and see if we can do, do the 100 miles in the week? Sounds good to me. Ian's just nodding. Yeah, yeah. This is just another week for me, mate. I don't know. <laughs> But, you know, it's interesting. I just set those challenges and I think it's, yeah, I, I thought it might be a bit of a damp squib, but actually it's had a really good response. So I'm, I'm quite excited about it now.
Do you fancy that, Mike? Hundred miles last weekend? Last yeah, weekend? I do. I do. I've had a I've had a similar epiphany in the last year or two about virtual races. I became friends with a guy called Stu who runs POW Virtual Running. Yeah. Um, and they're much. They're all sort of short format races, but um, speaking to him about that community and the camaraderie and and how it you know it's um sometimes there's an overlap but a lot of the time it's those people who don't want the egos and the bravado of an actual race and the the characters that we all love and are here about uh, amongst races and it's a safe zone for those guys to either find their way into racing or just to feel comfortable there and um i think for me it was almost a challenging my my norms it was that you know, I, it's a new thing in a world that was very traditional to me, uh, and, and I've certainly come around to it. And, and again, you know, yeah, you think how many people have planned on the Lakelands, and now there's a chance they can do it in some way. It's a damn side better than see you in 2021. So um, I'm up for that. That looks really good. I had a question for you, Mark. Um, with all the discussion now and the thinking and the planning that you're clearly having to do about races, is there much collaborative discussion between race organisers? Do you sound off other people? Are there are there forums between the big companies to to have these ideas thrashed out? Um, so uh, the, there is a British Triathlon have a conference call on a reg, fairly regular basis with all of the organisers, and you can just dial into it. And I I've not personally been dialing into it, but Rob has, who's my business partner at Epic Events, and he's been dialing in and listening to it. And they've been having discussions about, you know, what events will look like and, you know, what problems they're currently having. So, yeah, and that British Triathlon have kind of pulled that together and shared it. So that's been quite useful. I say, well, I've not, not been on the call myself, but Rob said it's been it's been pretty good in getting ideas from people. Um, and it might be everything, you know, from, you know, they were discussing the legal standpoint on where they are with refunding entries and going forwards, how, how they're going to put the virtual events on and stuff like that, you know. So it's been, I think that's been quite a good support group. But I think if, if British Triathlon hadn't pulled it together, then I would have said, no, there wouldn't have been any. Because I think they are, you know, to some extent, people see each other as competitors. So I don't think it's a kind of thing where they would have come together and collaborated. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's one of the uh, really good things that British Triathlon have done, to be honest, is, is pull that group together for the group discussions and everybody's benefited from it. Yeah. So that, that's a new group. Um, I think it was formed, you know, because of the current situation with COVID, uh, British Triathlon, obviously we, we work with British Triathlon because our events are affiliated. So they offered this um, uh, this collaboration to, to all the um, all the event organisers who are, who are affiliated to British Triathlon and said, you know, do you, you can be part of this and we'll have a regular conference call. So when you're on the conference call, all the other companies are on there, whether it's, you know, Human Race, who are like a massive company, you know, owned by the Tour de France people, aren't they, I think Human Race now. So the guys from Human Race are on the call and we're on the call as well as quite a small local company. So everybody's, you know, everybody's on there and there's a, just a, it's, yeah, it's just a group chat and, and it's interesting to hear other people's views and what they're doing as well and what their thought, thoughts on different issues are. So, um, so yeah, that's been really useful. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and like you said as well, I think a lot of stuff's changed, you know, that the working practices, I mean, it's, it's interesting you say doing, doing a um like client assessments uh a physio assessments online which i suppose traditionally you'd think well that's just that's not how you do a physio assessment you have to see someone you have to be hands-on um 
But actually, for a lot of them, you know, I can understand why you wouldn't have to be hands on. There's so much work you can do just speaking to people face to face. Um, and uh, I think a lot of that stuff will probably the ones who've been forced to adapt, you know, like, like we've, we've previously said, that will continue. I don't know how much how much the universities will continue maybe doing, you know, lectures at home and using Zoom and these things even more stuff that's really worked for people and people that have been at home and worked from home and thought, why do I even have to be in work? Because I'm doing fine here, you know, and we, we've, with our coaching, uh, our coaching business, we've, we're doing a lot of stuff like the virtual events, I think will probably continue because like as a physio, if you don't do anything virtual, then your, your catchment area is only those people close enough who will drive to your clinic. And it's the same with events really. Um, if we organize in a little small event from the shop, it's only our catchment is only people that are willing to drive somewhere on a Tuesday evening, drive within 10 or 15 miles. But when we start doing virtual events, we're getting people from all over the country doing a, you know, we've been doing some small virtual duathlons on a Tuesday evening and we're getting people all over the country and not even in this country as well. People from other countries doing the events. So it's great. You get a much wider catchment and we're using, we've been doing some turbo sessions to keep in contact with people. Our turbo sessions that our coach athletes do, we're doing a live turbo session using Zoom. And so, you know, all of that stuff where we looked at it and thought, well, why, why is, have we only waited till now to do this? Because we could have been doing this any week and there's no reason why we can't carry on doing it when things go back to relative normal, you know. So I think we probably learn a lot of things from it as well that we will carry forwards and, and, and use for years to come. I think a lot of things will change. I think um, right. I think yeah. I mean, we're we're creatures of habit, aren't we? We don't like yeah. Most so even though there's been a lot of drivers that might take people in that direction, people tended to carry on doing as they did. But I think in all areas, as you say, there'll be there'll be residual effects. And I think the nature of the and some of the best mitigating strategies actually are going to only contribute to that more because the social distancing and so on inevitably it makes more sense to continue to work at home when you can even if there's times when you need to be back in the office we've just built a 500 seat lecture theater it's the biggest lecture theater on campus with social distancing it holds 53 yeah 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 it's almost inevitable that you're going to have a blended delivery of most universities are going to be online or what we're probably moving towards is more of a blended delivery where large group lecture theatres uh, uh, are done online and it's smaller group sort of where you're going to get the face-to-face, -face, the seminars and the lab practicals and so on. But even those will all be recorded so that if a student has to isolate or is vulnerable, they can still continue with their learning, but they don't have to go onto the campus. And I think it's the same with all the other things, like you say, with the training and so on. People maybe wouldn't have done it before, but now that they've seen that they can train in that way and it, it is effective, and the same with the physio practice. Uh, actually, in terms of the physio, people, if you look at it from a client perspective, in the past you might have made do with a physio who was local to you because that was the best that was on offer, but now you can actually, if you can get a, a session with them, you can you can go to some of the best in the business if you you know if you, uh, you have a virtual uh consultation because they could be 200 miles away and, or on another continent yeah yeah so. and, and that's and that's what's happening that's what people are doing now they're, they're reaching out to people that they didn't think they could reach out to 
Yeah. 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 Um, and again, and, and it sharpens the axe of the therapist because we probably, truth be told, 80% of the success of an appointment is from the talking bit at the start, the subjective. And now you're forced to really focus on that. There's not this treatment couch sitting next to you that they keep making sly eyes at as if, come on, get me on there, do something to me. Now they have to engage you. You have to listen. You have to take time explaining stuff to them about exercises or rehab or training. And um, and it's proven really successful. Do you think, Ian, you'll ever see a day, and this might be a bit bit far-fetched, but do you think you'll ever see a day where a student graduates from a uni and has never attended that uni in person? So uh, there are forms of delivery and there are courses where that happens or it can happen, but there'll still probably be some kind of point where they would come onto campus. So we do a distance learning PhD and I'm I'm actually chatting at the moment with a guy who's over in Holland who wants me potentially to supervise his PhD. He'll do the distance learning PhD and almost all the supervision will be done uh, via Zoom and he'll be in Holland collecting his data and so on and we'll do everything else online. But even on that programme, at the moment it's up. So the university pay for flights for the at the beginning of the course, at the end of the course. Uh, at the beginning it's for like a one week block of intensive sort of research methods and then at the end it's for graduation and so on. So they do still uh, attend campus on a couple of occasions. but. Uh, I think in specific circumstances where you might have someone with a vulnerability uh, to to a virus, if the virus is still in the population, uh, you know, still in the population, then that could possibly happen now, uh, where people n- never attend. Um, it's an interesting thought, but yeah, I think uh, I could. It's certainly possible. There's no reason why it couldn't happen, and we have distance learning courses for students of other countries, but uh, they they do usually at some point come in um it's more of a sort of blended delivery where they'll do very short intense periods but in the current climate you know even those aren't feasible so yeah it's it's entirely possible certainly for a a one-year course like a master's or something like that um, within the next year there's probably going to be quite a lot of students in that situation it at least gave me a little bit of extra time with my hamstring rehabilitation, which took longer than I'd hoped it would. So I've been at gradually, I mean, I'm still getting pains and niggles now from it. And I'm, I'm at that point where I'm trying to really push on without having any setbacks. But it's given me a full year just to target this one event at the end of the year. So it actually worked well for me. I probably would have ran myself into the ground if I was doing any races earlier in the year. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm just hoping that uh, just making sure I'm ready for September, uh, because the one thing I would um, I won't regret training really hard and getting fit for September and then September not taking place, but I would regret not training for it. And then it took place, and then I miss, missed out and I had an opportunity, you know, to go and race well. So um, so yeah, so I'm still all all guns blazing and going for it, although. When the weather changes and it starts to rain, I might start dropping. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we're all just really hoping out with that there'll be some form of racing that we can do even in the autumn or into early early winter. Yeah. Um, 
I think there's going to be social distancing measures in place. So I'm certainly looking at, you know, how we're looking at uh, things for the university in terms of the institution and what we're planning for for next year. That there'll be still measures in place. I think so. Racing might not look like what we're used to, but I, I'm hopeful there'll be some form of uh, of racing. I mean, um, I guess the thing is, you you can't remove all risk from any scenario, can you? But no. Sit. And even if just when everybody turns up to the university or everybody turns up to do a race, everybody had to use hand gel when they arrive and hand gel before they leave. Just one simple intervention like that will reduce the risk to some extent. Yeah. It won't completely remove the risk, but it will reduce it. So the more things you can put in place, all you're doing is just removing the risk down to a level where it stops, you know, the potentially being like we talk about the second peak or the second spike. You know, that's that's what we need to do, isn't it? Just to try and just appreciate that you can never remove all risk, but you can certainly reduce it just by putting some simple measures in place. I think there's a couple of things on that. I don't think the science is quite there at the moment, so we can quantify what that risk is. But over the coming months, the amount of research that's going on at the moment, we'll have a much better feeling of what measures reduce the risk by uh, 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 and what amount. Um, and obviously, being out in the open air, you can clearly see from the government strategy is one of the ones that, is making things much safer um, so we'll be able to quantify that much better I think and once you can do that and you start to see that those levels of risk are at the point that are no different to you know many of the other risks that we face as endurance athletes when we go out then there's no reason why people you know events with those measures in place shouldn't be allowed to go on yeah yeah uh, so it, we're just waiting I think for that uh, for that evidence to come through and that research to be done so we can quantify it because I think everyone's just guessing a little bit at the moment aren't they but I think the other thing on terms of the second spike I don't th- I, I think we've because we've got the track and trace in place now and we can monitor it I think we'll see much quicker interventions to lock down local areas and, and to move much more quickly there's there's a lot of obviously a lot of uncertainty and moving slowly got us into the first I think I don't think we're going to, so I think the other measures will come in much quicker to uh, to prevent a second wave. So we might see those peaks in local places, but I think they'll be shut down much quicker. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Mike, anything from you to finish? Just one one thing. I'm interested to see what happens. I've seen a trend with athletes over the last few years where a lot of the problems are caused from these congested. Um, emotionally driven tra- sort of race diaries people get into racing and they do a race and then think right I'll do that race again they'll add a couple of new races to it and then the following year there's more races and more races and part of the problems that they can never address issues are because they don't have time in that race calendar to address them or the race calendar's congestion is the cause of a lot of their problems so I'm really interested to see whether now people have a blank canvas to start again and they can now look at being very much more deliberate in their preparation year on year, rather than just trying to race everything they've ever raced, or whether we're going to have this return where everyone just tries to sign up for every single thing that they can possibly do yeah. because they missed it so much. So, so yeah. I'm really intrigued to see where we end up in the next 18 months when, when the world's more normal of how it affects people's attitudes to planning races for the season. Yeah, yeah. Well, we need to get our fix in October. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Right. Well, it was great chatting to you. And, you know, you two really need to return my emails and calls and we can do this. <laughs> so, uh, yes. We won't leave it as long next time, will we? I hope the wait isn't so long next time. But, uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of the week. Stay safe and, more importantly, stay alert. <laughs> Take care, guys. Yeah, Take care, guys. everyone. Bye. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>